Welcome to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm your co-host, Alex Merkel. And I'm Josh Randles. And this is where evidence-based medicine meets unconventional warfare. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speaker's own, and nothing contained herein is to be considered the official opinion of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine or the U.S. government, including the Defense Health Agency, Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Navy, or Air Force. Hello again, this is Dan Godby, Medical Editor of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. Thank you for joining us for the summer 2022 edition of the JSON Podcast. For this issue, I will mention an article worth reading that will not be covered by Josh and Alex in this podcast. The article is Physiological and Psychological Stressors Affecting Performance, Health, and Recovery in Special Forces Operators, Challenges and Solutions, a Scoping Review. This paper is a balanced overview of the available markers and measurement tools with their respective pros and cons. As always, we at the JSOM are interested in hearing from our readership, especially those of you in the primary positions, and I'd like to again reiterate our mentoring program specifically created to help medics get through the publishing process. A select group of editors are dedicated to concentrate on articles submitted by medics and provide assistance in getting them published. Now, here's Alex and Josh with the podcast. Well, hello, Alex, and welcome back. How are you doing? Did you enjoy SOMSA this year? It was a great conference. I believe, if I remember correctly, it was really well attended back to pre-COVID body snatcher attendance levels, which was wonderful. And what I really enjoyed was uh, chatting with the new incoming president for SOMA, Uh, John Dominguez and one of his big pushes that I think is a great great line of effort is to be sure to integrally involve uh, enlisted and senior enlisted folks into a lot of these different areas of SOMA. Uh, So we in the Millsoft track are actually trying to bring in a enlisted advisor for making a lot of decisions and also the importance of integrating enlisted personnel into teaching decision making and really a lot of the important components of soft medical education was reinforced last week at the GEMEX, the Joint Emergency Medicine Exercise in Fort Hood that was run by a bunch of really great folks and one of the very well put AAR bullet points was it's always nice to hear from doctors but where are the enlisted medics who are actually the true subject matter expertise when it comes to um, so many of these areas? And so if you are a enlisted medical provider in the special operations realm and are interested in helping to share your opinions, expertise, and experience, please do reach out through your leadership or any of us or really folks that can help get you in front of some of your peers and some of us doc types because we need to learn here and understand what your experiences and training have brought to you because you guys are the tip of the spear when it comes to this topic. So as y'all might notice here in the next little bit, this edition will be slightly different. The summer 2022 edition of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine is focused primarily on critical care articles, and the majority of the first authors will be medics. So in keeping with that spirit, this particular episode of the JSON podcast will be populated primarily by 
the medic first authors of those articles. So let us know what you think about this particular format and if you like it. And now without further ado, the summer edition of the JSON podcast. All right, really excited and privileged to have one of our medic primary authors for the analgesia and sedation section of the summer edition. Welcome to the show, Justin. Hi, thanks for having me. Justin, really excited to uh, finally make your acquaintance. If I understand correctly, you've got pretty extensive experience as a soft medic with USASOC. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I've been in the community for a little over 10 years, 12, 12 years now, yeah. Oh, man. And I imagine you've had quite an opportunity to do some analgesia and sedation. What is it that made you interested in this particular topic? I've definitely had some opportunities. As far as doing this topic for this series with the JSOM in this in this paper comes from a lot of failures I've both personally felt like I have had, and then also I've seen other medics from, from everywhere have, because there's just not enough of an understanding of drugs. Unfortunately, guys seem to live off of anecdotes or personal experiences in this one casualty instance that they had. Uh, a lot of medics don't get a lot of time pushing medication in an OR or in the back of an ambulance or you know other places where other medical professionals really get to see and experience these drugs. Um, and so there's a lot of lack of confidence or perhaps even lack of just knowledge and experience when, when giving different medications when the time comes that they need to do it and they're you know alone and in the dark and, <laughs> and they got to get it right. And so we just wanted to create something here that, that provided just a very easy, accessible piece for medics to have. Um, it's not going to replace actually getting in the OR, getting in the ambulance and pushing these medication, but at least they can see a quick reference kind of guide for a lot of these medication in one place without having to dig through a book. You know, you said uh, alone and afraid, and I uh, might almost see a future logo for a critical care supplement that's a, a takeoff of naked and afraid, but it's the soft medic alone and afraid. <laughs> I mean, they might be naked alone and afraid. You know, who's who's judging? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. So you, you um, answered my next question as well, I think, a little bit, but maybe we could touch on that as well, which is, as you know, um, whenever we're assessing evidence-based medicine and especially a um, academic scientific manuscript looking at a new implementation protocol device, that sort of thing, an important part is what is the gap in the literature? So maybe a, a question for you is, what is the gap that you were hoping this critical care soft medic focused manuscript could address bearing in mind that we already have uh, cpgs from the joint trauma service for analgesia and sedation there's the ranger medic handbook and also the the pararescue and the soft medic handbook yeah uh, that's a great question and those are all great resources and these are regularly evaluated to include updates in recommendations as we learn more about you know, different medications or we train our medics differently. These things are updated and they're, they're a great resource and, and every medic should be reading these regularly to see what's coming out, especially I know the Ranger Medic Handbook just dropped a, a new edition. JTS is always releasing new CPGs. Our goal with this specifically was to put everything in tables that could very easily be cut out and laminated 
and just be a quick reference guide. While all of those resources are great, they involve a lot of turning pages to see what a lot of these characteristics of the drugs kind of are, and the drugs that you're carrying might be in different places in the books or on different pages. And so people end up making their own medication tables anyway, but this gives a quick, easily accessible resource for that. And also some medications that soft medics may be exposed to, either in a MPT rotation, whether in an OR or civilian rotation elsewhere, or in the next major conflict, if they are getting, you know, different medications that aren't necessarily in the uh, TMAPs or the JTSCPGs or the Ranger Medic Handbook, and at least gives them a starting point to understand what these drugs are, some dosages, and, and what to worry about. So that's what we are trying to do here is provide the information very concise down to the medic level, hammer the dose, and then onset, peak, and duration, uh, all included right there. Ooh, that sounds like it's probably got a lot of graphics and is in bite-sized little pieces, which is great for my attention span. Yeah, I'm there with you. I like pictures, uh, and so I think and hope we did a good job of including enough of them that are that are pretty easily digestible. And there is a lot of this stuff on here that doctors would like to see as well with their knowledge of medication. I think medics are just like, oh, I'm going to send this much, and it does this, and that's good enough for me. But being able to speak doctor, you know, at least at the 1-1, one, 1-plus, one, one plus, one plus level uh, for all of my <laughs> language-qualified folks only makes you better prepared, especially when you try to have a conversation with a physician, um, like, like your battalion surgeon or your group surgeon or whatever, if you want to add something. You need to be able to speak the language intelligently and capably, and, and this hopefully will give a little bit of resources there. Awesome. And so you've already told us a little bit about what to expect inside your article. And so I think it's incredibly important, as people have already heard, to flip through and really understand the nuances, but also some of the tables that you bring. So as folks flip through your um, article, you know, how did you end up breaking it down in terms of sections? Is there background anatomy and pathophys? Is there any crazy biokinetics or anything like that? Or what are the different sections? Yeah, great question. No to a lot of the really deep science. We tried to target this down to the medic level, and while we have some medics who are are biochemistry nerds, uh, I'm probably one of those. A lot of medics are more of a, a tourniquet and a chest seal and, and push some drugs, and that's okay, right? Like, we need both types. Um, so the way this is kind of presented is there are four simulated casualties brought to a Roll 1 facility, and they all have different levels of trauma and different levels of pain, and that opens up a discussion for the difference between analgesia and sedation and why to use one and why to use the other and the different levels within those and then the medication that can achieve these things, both T-Tri-C recommended or not T-Tri-C recommended and very clearly labeled in tables. I'm just going through the rest of that and just recommendations as far as what meds can be combined, which ones should not be combined, what are some instances you might want to avoid using a certain medication, um, etc. And just how to be prepared to put these different patients in these different levels of sedation and different forms of treating their pain. Oh man, that's a, a really great format and I'm super excited to see that. Well, 
It sounds like you guys did just an incredible job setting this out to make it directly applicable to the uh, boots on the ground, soft medic, or uh, boots on the water, depending on the service. Boots in space? I don't know. Uh, as uh, amazing of a medic as I'm sure you are, I'm going to guess that this was a bit of a team effort. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes, we tried to get a pretty diverse group of people to hear some different insights and thoughts as to what they think is important in the analgesia and sedation in the austere setting. So we grabbed a critical care and emergency physician from the Navy. We grabbed an Air Force um, special operations medic who is now an LNO to the Joint Trauma Service. And we grabbed a trauma surgeon and wanted to see just a little bit of different insight based on experiences and how we can then tweak this paper so it's useful to not just me, Justin, but to everyone else who is picking this up, that it, it's it's a easy resource that can be plugged and played um, and appreciated by medics and physicians alike, especially those physicians who are in charge of medics and want to have a better understanding of what their medics have been trained on uh, and are familiar with. Mm, wow, that sounds like a, a really great SME panel to lean on to build this up. And so it's really exciting that we are focusing a bit of energy, uh, attention, and education on appropriate and safe analgesia and sedation for our critically injured tip-of-the-spear warfighters. But, uh, you know, we need to emphasize that, that needs to be done safely and appropriately. And so I'd be curious on your take about some of this multimodal analgesia that we're seeing. And, you know, specifically the reason I think that this is timely and relevant is because you and I heard the really great update last week at SOMSA from the JTS committees uh, from each of the different cheerleads. So we had the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care from Monty, the Committee on En Route Casualty Care from Colonel Cord Cunningham, as well as the Committee on Surgical Combat Casualty Care from uh, Dr. Shane Jensen. And uh, Cord in particular mentioned that uh, we do now have increasing exposure to uh, multimodal analgesia in a single bag from some of our really smart CRNAs who are mixing ketamine, fentanyl, and medaz in a bag. Um, and I've heard Doc Rush actually encouraging some of his paramedics with appropriate medical director supervision and oversight uh, using this in a, a single stick. But Colonel Cunningham mentioned that his in-route medics really need to not be doing this without some appropriate direction, supervision, and training. Uh, what are your thoughts on multimodal analgesia in a single stick or in a bag? Do you have experience? Do you think it's ready for prime time? What's the road forward there? So I do have experience. Um, I had been taught this, we'll call it the multimodal stick. Uh, some of the phrases medics may be familiar with are a Tiva stick, uh, jet fuel, or rocket fuel, or bang stick, or I'm sure there's at least a couple other different flavors of essentially combining ketamine, versed, and fentanyl in a bag or a stick. And I had never done it, so I sought out the opportunity uh, to go into the OR and, and talk with some of these CRNAs who are pushing medication every day and try it out and see how it worked. Does it work? Oh, absolutely. Of course it does. You give the old Beijing cocktail there, you give it a little shake and, and push some in, and you're getting those effects on that patient, and you're hitting different 
facets of sedation and analgesia um, with those three medication. Uh, I felt comfortable doing so, uh, especially in an OR with a CRNA. Uh, you have lights, you have monitors, you have you know everything there in case something goes wrong. And I, I would l- like to think I have researched and, and pushed enough of these meds to understand a little bit more about these drugs than you probably understand coming out of the schoolhouse, uh, which I think is important if you're going to start combining medication in one syringe. One thing I would like to touch on for those who are considering doing this uh, is just understanding the different onsets, peaks, durations, and general dosages of these drugs if you combine them in one syringe. So your fentanyl and your midazolam are going to have a longer duration than your ketamine in that syringe. So if you're having to keep bumping this Tiva stick or this bang stick um, to get the effects from the ketamine that you're looking for, that dissociation uh, potentially understand that you are giving higher and higher dosages of fentanyl and midazolam to your patient and just you need to be aware of that and prepared for that and and ensure that you have your bag or your stick set up in such a way that you're not starting to push somebody into toxic ranges with those two drugs Um, so that would be the only thing i would caution if you're going to try to do it I think it's a great thing to try. I think it's a great tool to have in the toolbox, especially for holding on to a patient or if you have to treat a lot of patients and you may not have the equipment uh, to draw up a bunch of different drugs and a bunch of different syringes for each patient uh, or the time. Uh, So I I definitely think there is potential for this uh, with the right training. I know Doc Rush has a lot of experience as a physician and teaching, and I think he makes a lot of very good points about with the appropriate medical direction and training, this could be an adjunct. But just really understanding the drugs that are in the bag, uh, it's not as simple as, oh, I have this syringe, I'm going to push one cc, and then that's perfect for every patient. I'll throw in here anecdotally, and I will uh, preface that it is anecdotally, I gave half a cc, which was 40 milligrams of ketamine, 20 micrograms of fentanyl, and half a milligram of midazolam into a patient, and she stopped breathing in the OR, completely just turned off, completely out, Uh, and that dose probably shouldn't have knocked her out. Uh, I've never seen anyone get knocked out from a dose that small of those drugs independently, but it opened my eyes that this could happen, whether the drugs are independent or in a whole syringe. So now in the back of my mind, I know that's a possibility, and maybe that happens on the battlefield and, and someone who hasn't had that exposure doesn't know that and now they're freaking out it's just it's just getting training and getting comfortable with these medications like anything else and so what we're trying to do here is just provide a table that you can see it you can see all of that and at least have an idea if you're going to start combining drugs what the differences are and what you need to be worried about Oh man, I can tell that we definitely picked the the right guy to lead this because experience gives you the sets and reps to get that one in a hundred, one in a thousand complication that really increases your sphincter tone. And that is just such a great reminder that things go fine until they don't. And that's just such a great reminder about the motto that good judgment comes from experience and experience 
comes from bad judgment. And I think we've, if you've been around long enough, you end up having that complication side effect, untoward effect that just ruins your day and hopefully not your patient's day. I, I remember many, many years ago when I ended up getting stuck on a uh, several weeks long medevac in the middle of the Pacific and I had to do a procedural sedation with ketamine. And we didn't expect the guy to have any complications. And the reason we were able to safely do it is because we had every single airway adjunct laid out, tested and verified prior to the um, intervention. And lo and behold, he did have some unexpected side effects, but we anticipated that we prepared and mitigated the risk and therefore it didn't become a um, train wreck. And, and you've just done such a great job of summarizing um, why sedation and analgesia is important to our patients, but we need to understand the few but very severe risks and complications and do that in a safe environment. Yeah, I also just want to stress with with this article in specific, uh, specifically, excuse me, that this is trying to get all of the information that we can provide uh, in one easy to access place. But it does not mean that you can take this and think that you're trained up on these medications because you have a quick reference guide uh, for each of the medication. And every medic listening to this should be seeking out opportunities to push these meds and get these experiences and. You know, it's going to be a lot harder to do now that deployments are becoming fewer and farther between, and, and thankfully combat casualties are, are becoming fewer and farther between uh, with that. But those training opportunities uh, as a medic are going to be lost, and they need to be sought out in the civilian sector or on a MPT or any of these other options. And the conversation needs to be had with your docs. Uh, what drugs are available. If you're interested in the bang stick, that needs to be a conversation that a medic has with their physician to see if that is in their scope and something that they're comfortable doing. Um, and then getting the experience and exposure to know how to respond to those when things do go bad. Uh, so while we're trying to make this digestible to a medic, especially the young new medic right out of the schoolhouse who's full of piss and hot vinegar, you know, just... Uh, just give them a better resource, but understand that, that, that you got to build the experience as well and, and be prepared. Like you said, you were prepared and it worked out in a way when you needed it. Just understanding that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Justin, thank you so much for spending what I have heard in the background has been an inordinate amount of energy and effort putting this outstanding product together in an effort to really better our community so that we can take great care of um, America's injured sons and daughters at the tip of the spear. No, I very much appreciate it. And uh, thank you for having me. Really excited to chat with the lead author for the mechanical ventilation section, Mr. John Friedman. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm super excited to talk about the paper and hopefully uh, gather some interest in a topic that some folks might find a little boring, if we're being totally honest. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Well, you know, blood goes round and round and air goes in and out. So you're covering 50% of uh, medicine that we know of. That's all you need to know. <laughs> right. Um, Actually, just skip the whole paper. You just summed it up. <laughs> exactly. Um, and it's always fun to hear about the different backgrounds and clinical experiences that folks have had. Can you tell us a little bit about your current setting and also what else you've done in life that's uh, built on your skills and training to bring you where you are today? Yeah, for sure. So going all the way back to 2012, I was 18 years old, 
I was going to be a physician. It was, you know, that was my dream from basically childhood. I took some detours here and there. But my dad was a doctor, my sister was a doctor, and I, I just knew that that's what I needed to do. And so I went to college and I almost failed out my first semester and I promptly transferred to a history degree. At the same time, I got involved with EMS. I got my EMT license, figured like, oh, this will pad my resume, kind of offset those uh, C's and C minuses, which we all can laugh at now. Kind of along the way, fell in love with, you know, that direct hands-on high stakes. Well, I told myself it was high stakes working for a private EMS agency and went to paramedic school, got involved with some 911 work, did critical care school. From there, really developed an interest in mechanical ventilation specifically. I was running uh, both critical care interfacility work and then point of injury, point of illness, 911 critical care, and really kind of developed my passion for, it was really interesting for me to see how these minor tweaks, whether it's 50 cc's of tidal volume or sonometer of water or two of PEEP, can make just a huge difference in a patient's clinical picture and clinical outcome. And how about where where you are today? Yeah, so like most medics, I, I burnt out and went to nursing school. Um, I know some folks go the PA route, some folks go whatever direction. I wound up uh, going to nursing school, was pr- fortunate enough to be able to do a one-year accelerated BSN. Uh, and so now I'm working in the cardiothoracic ICU, not touching a whole lot of ventilators, but still getting to work very closely with ventilated patients, getting to see that nice cause and effect relationship. Oh, wow. Sounds like you've definitely uh, tweaked a few knobs on some various ventilators, probably of various different um, qualities over the past few years. Definitely. My my first vent when I worked for certain three-letter agency was a nice little orange box that had yes and no, basically, as its settings. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, uh, graduated uh, to using the Ravel, which is is and will always be my baby. Uh, it's definitely not up to, uh, I think, what would we consider the, to be the current you know, standard. I think there are definitely better ventilators out there now. But the Revelism will always be my baby. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about what prompted you to help write this particular manuscript. Summer of 2020, I had just graduated from nursing school, and I was about to start my first nursing job. I was working on the ambulance, and a friend contacted me and said, hey, like, I'm part of the team that's working on the joint trauma systems, uh, mechanical ventilation, CPG. You know, is that a project that you're interested in working on with us? And, you know, of course, I jumped at this opportunity. I thought that'd be incredible. And then at the same time is kind of when the, you know, this idea for the supplement came together. And Andy reached out to me and said, hey, like, I know you're working on, you know, the CPG would you be interested in writing a little more narrow view for someone who's, you know, a soft medic who might be a little further forward, a little more austere situation, uh, might have a little bit better of an understanding of anatomy and physiology, maybe. And of course, you know, not knowing when to say no to a project, I said, absolutely, I'll work on this. Got it. That's a pretty helpful understanding of the pathway about uh, how you and your team got to this manuscript. And so maybe you could give us a bit of an advertisement from a high level view about what's in this manuscript and really um, a reason to encourage everybody out there to go read this very succinct and well-tailored uh, piece of education for folks. Yeah. So first and foremost, you know, the biggest selling point is that it's short. Uh, I think we're looking at five pages tops, lots of pictures for the 18 deltas. And uh, basically, we start with kind of a quick overview of the anatomy. You know, no one uh, that's graduated Sockham is going to be surprised by the anatomy that comes out of here. We talk a little bit about the you know actual physical principles 
of the gas laws, the Pousset's law that go into this. And then we roll into basically what a ventilator is, right? As far as, you know, various settings, how the ventilator delivers breaths. And then from there, we get a little bit more specific to that soft level as far as specific pathophysiology and specific, especially trauma pathophysiology that we're going to be looking at in the, at the point of injury. From there, we basically roll into a how to set up your vent, how to run your vent safely. And then we kind of talk real quickly about some troubleshooting as far as, you know, your patient is doing this, this is what you should do, or, you know, your ventilator says this, here's how to troubleshoot that error. And then finally, we talk a little bit about the logistics that go into this, especially if you're looking at evacuation by air and what you need to be considering as far as, you know, those kind of specific concerns. And then simple material logistics of how do you have enough oxygen to do this? How should you be, you know, thinking in terms of the limited resources of that austere environment? And then I think I would be remiss if we didn't spend some time talking about one of your popular soapbox items, which is? The whole point of this paper was to get up on my soapbox and preach about lung protective ventilation. You know, anyone that has seen our Instagram page knows that there are three things that I'm really passionate about. Good sepsis care, good cast iron care, and lung protective ventilation. The first two we're not going to talk about today because that'll be a 30-minute podcast for each of them in and of themselves. But lung protective ventilation can be summed up really simply. Limit barotrauma, limit atelectasis, and limit volutrauma. Basically, if you can follow the steps that we outline in this paper, you're on about 80% of the way there to having a solid plan for basically any patient. You know, obviously there are more advanced ventilation modes that are going to come into play as pathophysiology develops, especially certain illnesses, certain uh, obstructive airway uh, illnesses are going to require some different strategies. But for your average point of injury, point of illness, fresh initiation of care, if you can basically follow this checklist that we've laid out, you're going to be doing your patient worlds of good versus just kind of winging it and saying, eh, they look about 100 kilos So we're going to give them about 500 cc's. Yeah, I think that's a a great reminder that we all could use more time getting foot stomped and especially getting sets and reps on. Absolutely. I'm a a big fan of keeping, uh, when I worked on the ambulance, we had a chart for ideal body weight. You know, the patient is this tall, therefore their ideal body weight is this much. And the chart was even better because it would give you specific title volumes based on what you wanted to deliver. So, you know, you got a 5'7 patient, you know, you want X, you know, cc's of title volume for 5 cc's per kilogram. You want Y cc's of title volume for 6 cc's per kilogram and so on and so forth. And it's incredibly helpful in those high stress situations to have that bit of cognitive offloading to keep you safe, to keep your patient safe, and just in general working smarter, not harder. All right, John. So because I like to make life easier for everybody, here's your challenge. Will you be adding on to one of your social media posts a reproduction of that chart that we might be able to laminate in all of our go bags? You know, definitely something that we can put out. It's uh, it's not a super secret thing and would love to love to put that out for folks. Right on. And what are some of the social media channels that um, you continue to use to share some of your clinical expertise on? 
Yeah, so we're on Facebook and Instagram, not TikTok. That's not us. You can find us at SFCEBM on Instagram and St. Fisher Church of Evidence-Based Medicine on Facebook. Well, I think that was an outstanding whirlwind tour of your manuscript and the background of it, which is always is equally of interest. Um, with that said, any final thoughts from your end? No, I just want to give a huge thank you to my co-author, Dr. Seth Asar, obviously Dr. Fisher for extending this opportunity to me, the editors of JSOM for even taking the time to look at this paper, let alone accepting it into, uh, into the supplement edition. We've had a string of editors along the way that I can't even begin to name how many, but all of you know who you are. Really appreciate your help. We wouldn't be here without y'all's hard work. With that said, you know, look for our paper in the Critical Care Supplement Edition coming out this summer. Ron, John Friedman, thanks so much for your time and insight. Thanks for all you continue to do for your patients at the bedside every day and your cardiothoracic ICU. And thank you for taking the time to try and make our community better than you found it. Thank you so much. I appreciate the chance to be on here today as well. Podcast listeners, did you know that every article reviewed on the JSON podcast is available to you free of cost on the Journal of Special Operations Medicine Journal website? All you got to do is click the podcast tab and navigate to the article of interest. Well over at the jsomonline.org website, you can also purchase an individual copy of any of the Special Operations Medics handbooks for your handy reference, including the ATP, PJ, IDMT, Ranger, and Smog handbook. Right, and our next manuscript that we're going to be covering is the airway management with non-invasive positive pressure ventilation with both of the first authors, Mr. Wayne Popalski and Mr. John Seidler. And I'm very excited to point out to the listeners and the readers that both the first and second author for this are both non-physicians. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, dude. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah. Really a privilege and a pleasure. And for those folks who have not had the privilege of uh, working with you guys or chatting with you at the annual SOMSA convention, maybe you could give us a little bit of a, a background about your clinical experience and what got you interested in this topic. Wayne Popalski, I'm uh, been in the Navy 18 and a half years. I'm a critical care flight paramedic, been doing that for 17 and some change, uh, not counting training in schools in and out of the SOF and search and rescue community that entire time and landed myself as the trauma and medical education program manager at Naval Special Warfare Group 2. Kind of the, I guess, thought process for this is, uh, and John can speak to this too, is I think for medics, one of the main reasons why we chose this is we go zero to 100 real quick when we're treating patients. And often enough times it's like, all right, you know, this person, they're going to get an MPA or they're going to get a crike, or I'm going to take their airway and start bagging for them. And, you know, in the civilian world, when we're doing medicine, a lot of those times that's not, there's a multitude of different tools that we have that we can use, which non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is one of those to not allow some of those more advanced things to happen, which really have lasting effects uh, for them down the road. So that was one of the main reasons. Yeah, thanks, Wayne. My name is John Seidler, as stated, uh, former Navy search and rescue corpsman, Kind of a short timer. I only spent six and a half years doing that. I got out in 2018 uh, as a certified flight paramedic and tactical paramedic. Kind of bounced around since then in varying education, 
uh, and critical care roles. I currently work for the Anacortes Fire Department in uh, Northwest Washington, uh, where we do kind of a mix of 911 EMS, fire suppression, tech rescue, and then uh, I also get the opportunity to work as a tactical paramedic on our local SWAT team. Kind of my interest in this since getting out of the Navy has been taking a lot of the lessons that I've learned in a maybe more involved civilian protocol set and applying to what I was seeing my providers and, and my peers doing while in the Navy uh, and working with other services. A lot of those things are lost as we uh, move away from the individual service-based protocol set, looking at um, the Joint Special Operations Protocols, the Ranger Medic Handbook, the PJ Handbook, all those things kind of wrap back to common practice, but we still have some gaps in that. So uh, in some of the other papers that Wayne and I have both authored, we've been trying to build out broader protocols so that the end user has the most efficient manner to provide effective treatments. Kind of my passion for non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is to get us away from the all or nothing game, especially with innovation or advanced airway management in general. Number one, it's labor intensive. Number two, it's pharmacologically intensive. And for a resource limited environment, we need to push past using up all of our drugs for one innovation. So that was one of the big things for us here. Well, right on. And I always like in the inpatient setting, the non-invasive positive pressure management, because uh, every once in a while you'll get that crazy fishbowl looking thing um, that goes all the way over the head, like in SpongeBob SquarePants. But I imagine that's not what we're talking about today. Yeah, certainly not going to be doing that. Obviously, over the last two years, we've seen some really huge advancements in this particular intervention throughout COVID and, and showing its true usability in critically ill lungs and airways. It would be cool to see the fishbowl brought out in a tactical setting. However, I would imagine that it would probably get stolen for other activities prior to being used on the battlefield. Yeah, tactically acquired and repurposed for sure. Well, moving on to more of a gap analysis and what the need was for soft medics to have your guys's summative uh, review here of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. What was missing in the literature or what was not available that led you guys to think that this was a necessary resource to put together? So we identified that this intervention really wasn't included in any of our literature. Obviously, Wayne and I coming from more of the in-route care side while also doing point of injury care, it was an intervention that we saw a lot of benefit in. I mean, Afghanistan, we saw a bunch of HAPE and HACE cases where healthy pulmonary edema could have been fixed with some non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. And while largely oxygen taxing really isn't labor intensive, and then just kind of limiting our need to make that decision to take someone's airway. The likelihood of a patient becoming a hypoxic drive and ventilator dependent increases tenfold for every 12 hours that they spend on a ventilator and positive pressure ventilation. So what we're trying to do is just not allow them to get to the point where they can't be weaned off that ventilator with lower pressure CPAP. Um, or with the true ability to do BiPAP, we're creating a much better patient four, five, 
10 days down the road than if we take that airway in the first one or two hours of their care. And they're much more likely to atelectasize. They're much more likely to have ventilator-induced lung injury. They're much, much more likely to have ventilator-associated pneumonia than if we're able to manage those airway pressures a little bit less invasively. I think one of the main things is we, as a paramedic or higher, whether you went to a soft schoolhouse or you went to a civilian institution or you're a clinician, I think we often forget that our bodies were negative pressure breathers, not positive pressure breathers. So people are so quick to just take an airway or provide positive pressure support. And like the, the body's not made for that. So if, if you can tweak one or two things and help them, you know, with very, very minimal meds to calm them down, you kind of notice that they can breathe a little bit better. So I guess for me was one of the big ones. That's such a good reminder in the hospital-based setting in our ICUs, of course, as you know well, every single morning we try and extubate all of our patients because intubation is um, not without harms and many times many significant harms. And so I think what I'm hearing you guys saying is that if we continue with historic practice patterns of just intubating people, expecting they'll be extubated in a couple of hours in the hospital, that may not work in the future domains. Yeah, and um, a, a case that Wayne and I both had uh, in 2016, um, the patient that I treated was a traumatic overpressurization injury um, where he had bilateral hemoneumothoraces uh, initially presenting with bilateral pneumothoraces. One of the recommendations we had received was to have given that gentleman positive pressure ventilation. Um, we luckily had foregone that until he got chest tubes in place, um, which at the time was not in our protocol. So not only did we decide, okay, this person's definitely not getting an advanced airway. We're also certainly not going to cram air into these lungs. He did get positive pressure ventilation with a BVM once they had chest tubes in place, was quickly subsequently intubated, but had a failure to wean uh, on multiple trials uh, over the course of 10 days to the point that he actually was an ECMO candidate, one of the first uh, survivable over 40-year-old overpressurization lung injuries uh, out of Harborview Medical Center going on ECMO because he was so atelectasized and his lungs were so contused that they just weren't able to get alveolar recruitment, you know, based on obviously tissue injury, but also um, just his demand from being on a really high pressure airway. So when the reader opens up their hot off the press hard copy publication and flip over to your section of the journal, what is your section going to look like to them? How's it broken down? What um, training aids has it got in there? How is it going to benefit them? Yeah, so it's going to give a quick introduction to what non-invasive positive pressure management is or non-invasive ventilation, so NPPV or NIV. A kind of a history like dating back to the iron lung uh, basically what what is NPPV and then what are the flavor of patients that you would think that you would want to use it really goes into yes while this is one tool there are some pharmacological tools that you really need to consider and then you know how does this tie into trauma patients. So if you, if you like look at the paper, like the majority of everything a software military medic trains for is trauma. However, we're not seeing a lot of trauma right now. We're seeing a lot of medical or uh, nature of illness type issues. And then what, what is the true issue going to be in the future fight? And then 
going into like how does MPPV play into the post-trauma patient? And and lastly, who is this not a candidate for? And then basically in, in closing, just adding that this is a form of airway support that is very, very, very easy. It is a novel tool that EMT basics, you know, with minimal training are taught how to put someone on CPAP. It is a very, very simple tool that buys them time to auctionate. And I know one of the other topics that you guys have in your manuscript, for those who may not be familiar with it, is a handy reference for the delayed sequence intubation, which is commonly known as DSI as opposed to the RSI, or I think as many folks who listen to Scott Weingart over at MCRIT know it as dead sexy intubation because of how elegantly it's done. And what's that reference uh, material going to look like for the reader? Uh, so the, the reference material is going to, it's going to kind of give a quick background. There are a few good references. Scott Weingart's one is, is a pretty good one. And then go into kind of like a little algorithmic checklist of how that should look. It was mirrored and copied from a few different pubs, but most of it was Weingart's uh, delayed sequence innovation that came out from uh, the Emergency Medical Journal in 2015. So we kind of painted that picture of like, hey, if you were ever considering or thinking about doing it, this is something you can snatch and grab from a study that will set you up for success first time. Mm. Excellent. Well, I know this is a topic which is near and dear to both of your hearts. Are there any other things that um, you think some of the readers need to have on their mind going forward or any future directions that you expect to be coming out in this arena in the near future? Yeah, so I would imagine that there, we're going to play a little bit more role of, of one airway. It, it, your airway stuff should be very thorough and very aggressive. and You don't take little things for granted. However, you should not go zero to 100 real quick. I think that as providers soft and up should be looking at, you know, just like take yourself back to paramedic school where you were, you know, looking at that acute respiratory distress patient. Take a look at their airway. How can you assist them? Let them help you and paint the picture of what works. And then how can you aid them? And then lastly, like what tools can I go to before I truly take that airway? Um, I, I'm, I kind of consider myself like an, an airway kind of Nazi because I, I bit myself in, in the ass about 13 years ago with a patient in Iraq, but it is near and dear to my heart. And I'm, I'm, I'm very big when it comes to airway management, but I also think that airway management can be a very, very non-advanced life support procedure if done right. Non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is something that you don't need a lot of tools for. You just need to assess them, determine when the right time is, and then do it until it doesn't work. The other cool thing for this is doing it until it doesn't work buys you time buys you time of labored skills, gear, farm, like meds, uh, all this other stuff that you might need because you're in the fight for a longer period of time. So maybe this will buy you eight to 12 hours so that you can start planning ahead to get more supplies. Or maybe this will buy you eight to 12 hours where you're not cramping your hand bagging someone. So, uh, or having to have guys rotate through watches to take care of someone. Um, and we're burning everyone's rest. So uh, these are just different things to just kind of consider and they don't always have to be a traumatic patient. Well, another outstanding addition in the bag. Really, really excited for this first and what we're expecting will not 
the last specially focused edition spearheaded by Andy Fisher, really drawing in the expertise from enlisted medics to populate and generate content that is directly applicable and geared for the working special operations medic. You know, I did recently have the opportunity to learn from some outstanding senior special operations medics and one of the things they mentioned is how much they enjoy this education and how challenging it is at their command to get buy-in for purchasing access to these and other academic journals. So as a quick reminder, if you are either a civilian practice, military, or special operations medic, we would always encourage you to maintain your membership with the Special Operations Medical Association, which is available at specialoperationsmedicine.org. And their annual membership of $150 also happens to include for free electronic access to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine, as well as a print edition for each of the four editions that come out every single year, so you can stay up to date on the latest, greatest, and hopefully build some ideas about how you can contribute to the world of literature for the environment in which you practice. If you want to help, please reach out. We are always looking for more assistance from the experts in this environment, which is you, the practicing Special Operations Medic. This is Sophia Rodriguez, Director of Marketing and Social Media Communications for the JSOM. I want to encourage our listeners to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at JSOM Online, and to sign up to receive our free e-newsletter on our website at jsomonline.org. We love hearing from our subscribers and followers, and welcome your feedback and suggestions.